Good morning. Once again, it's a privilege to be here with you, just to open up God's Word and uh, talk about a few things that we can take away uh, from Scripture. Uh, This morning, we are going to be in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 54. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 and 54. Very familiar passage. It's following the Lord's Supper. Jesus takes his disciples out to the Mount of Olives. It's a solitude, place of prayer, place of contemplation, a place where Jesus casted his cares and his burdens upon his Father in heaven. And on this particular evening, violence erupted. We know that Jesus was arrested. He was dragged away only to face the cross. Can you feel it? Can you smell it? Is it stirring in the deepest recesses of your heart and in your soul? Can you sense the deep darkness that is so pervasive across this globe? Do you see it coming? Worried doubtful, fearful, concerned that you might not be able to handle the darkness that's coming upon us? Can you really feel the angst and the struggle that Nehemiah felt when he looked at the condition of his people in the place that people reveled and gloried in God Do you have that same ache and pain and longing and groaning about what's coming upon us? I want to walk you through a few statistics this morning. We have countries all across this world. We have saber-rattling terrorists. We have China. We have North Korea. We have Iran, Iraq. We have Russia. We have all these countries aligning themselves, and we're on the very verge of a war that could change civilization as we know it today. The global epidemic of AIDS has claimed over 40 million lives, and there's another 70 million globally that are infected. Look at poverty that has touched over 50% of the global population of this world. Three billion people live under $2.50 a day. UNICEF reports that over 22,000 children a day die from starvation. Think about the Patriots football stadium. By Thursday, that will be filled up with children across the world that had died. That's how many people died, how many children died from starvation. We think about just the Christian kingdom or the churches here in our country and abroad at large. We know that churches have been rocked with sexual scandal for decades and have failed to address it and deal with it and bring about healing and wholeness in people's hearts. We think about mainline denominations in our country and abroad that are wrestling with the issue of same-sex marriage. And we have churches that are installing same-sex couples as their pastors and leaders of their flock. Can you feel it? Do you sense it? Can you see the darkness rolling in on the masses of humanity? Let's take the issue of abortion alone. 
that the World Health Organization reported last year that over 50 million children were aborted. The statistics are staggering, and the statistics support that there is a pervasive darkness that is moving across the globe and has touched our country. We open up the newspaper, and immediately we see drug addiction, we see violence, we see hatred, we see racial discord, we see police officers getting gunned down in the streets of our major cities. Page after page after page is pain, suffering, loss, heartache, murder, hate, animosity, you name it, anything and everything that is bad and evil and untrue is taking place in our country today. Darkness is so pervasive, so prevailing across the globe. And Jesus knew about a time and uh, a time of darkness, and we're going to look at uh, Jesus' experience in Luke chapter, as I bring it up here, as we look at Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. Leaving there, he went, as he so often did, to Mount Olives. The disciples followed him, and when they arrived at the place, he said, pray you don't give in to temptation. He pulled away from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, and Father, and this is his prayer, Father, remove this cup from me, but please, not what I want, what do you want? At once an angel from heaven was at his side strengthening him. He prayed on all the harder, sweat wrung from him like drops of blood. They poured off his face. He got up from prayer and he went back to his disciples and he found them asleep. In fact, they were drugged by grief. He said, what business do you have sleeping? Get up. Pray so that you don't give in to temptation. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than a crowd showed up. Judas, the one from the twelve, in the lead, he came right up to Jesus and kissed him. And Jesus said, Judas... Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those with him saw what was happening, they said, Master, shall we fight? One of them, in fact, took out their sword and took a swing at the chief priest's servant and lopped off his right ear. Jesus said, Let them be, even in this. Then touching the servant's ear, he healed them. And Jesus spoke to those who had come, high priests, temple police, religion leaders. What is this? Jumping me with swords and clubs if I were a dangerous criminal? Day after day I've been with you in the temple. You've not so much as lifted a hand against me. But do it your way. It's a dark night. It's a dark hour. I think about what it must have been like to be one of, followers, one of the followers of Jesus in that garden that night. The fear, the anger, the doubt. Here we had followed Jesus three years, and our hearts were filled with visions and dreams of Jesus ascending and taking his rightful place, conquering all the evils and the ills of the world. And in a flash of a moment, what we find here is that all coming to an end? We find the dreams that these disciples had held in their hearts going up in smoke. Shattered, broken, filled with wonder. 
Now, I believe there's a few things that we can take away from this dark hour or this dark night that Jesus and his disciples encountered. Just a couple principles this morning, beginning with, in the hour of darkness, integrity may be sacrificed. Think about that for a moment. In the hour of darkness, integrity may be sacrificed. Think about Jesus' enemies. They weren't the masses. Jesus traveled among the masses. He loved on them. He fed them. He healed them. He spent a massive amount of his personal time with the masses. The masses, in fact, loved Jesus. But his enemies were the political leaders, and his enemies were the church leaders of the day. He's sitting there in a solitary, quiet, dark place, praying and and seeking comfort and seeking wisdom in the will of God. And this crowd comes upon him and they rustle him to the ground and they arrest him under the cover of night. You know, the image here is that they weren't just wanting to arrest him because Jesus represented something much more. He represented light. He represented truth. He represented that delicate, soft, sensitive voice that spoke to the human heart that would say, you're wrong. That you're in error. That this is not the right way. After all, Jesus did refer to himself as I am the light of the world. And so the masses loved Jesus, but it was the religious leaders, his enemies of the day, they did not appreciate, respect, nor embrace the light of Jesus. They were threatened by the light of Jesus. Because the things that Jesus taught and the things that Jesus shared in the temple courts offended the religious leaders of the day. Because they were about power. They were about money. They were about influence. They were about safeguarding their position. And they knew the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ would shake their very existence at its core. And because they loved themselves and not Jesus, and they loved themselves and not God, and they loved themselves and not the masses, they rallied together, they collaborated together, and they simply wanted to extinguish Jesus. The darkness in the recesses of these leaders' hearts and souls wanted to snuff out the very existence of Jesus. They wanted no part of him. They knew that when Jesus sat next to him in the temple courts and they were teaching and preaching and leading, that the words of Jesus spoken turned the lights on and they would have to run and scatter and hide because their motives and their desires and their dreams and their ambitions had been highlighted and exposed for all to see. You know, in times of darkness, we come upon temptation. Jesus prayed for his own followers Guard yourself, be prepared, be ready. In fact, some temptations, he simply tells us to run and to flee. But can you imagine the tremendous pressure, the tremendous temptation that Jesus must have been experiencing at this point in time in his life? He had given up to absolutely everything. He had lived three years in this world. He had done absolutely everything that his Father in heaven had asked him to do. And look what it comes to. A night of hopelessness, a night of helplessness, a night of uncertainty, 
a night of pain, a night of mocking, a day of scourging, a day of beating, nails being driven through his wrist and his legs, being beaten beyond recognition that his own mom couldn't identify him or make him out. And his life and his ministry with his father led him to a very dark and lonely and isolated place. You know, sometimes we're going to find ourselves in dark and lonely and isolated places in our lives. And like Jesus, we're going to have a choice. We're going to have a choice to either stand firm, to safeguard the integrity and the character of Christ, or we're going to have the free will and the choice to collapse under the weight of the pressure and begin making compromises in our life. Jesus stood strong. He wrestled and he agonized with his father. And it came to a place after he expressed his grievances, he simply came to a place of submission and quiet surrender. And he said, what do you want me to do? That's a challenging place to come to in your marriage. It's a challenging place to come to in your finances. It's a challenging place to come to in your relationship with your children. It's a challenging place to come to in the workplace. Because, quite honestly, the world is pretty dark. And they don't respect Christians by and large. And in fact, when you look at the political system and the religious system in our world, they want to suffocate any sense of integrity, any sense of morality, any sense of character. They just simply want to it away. You know, another principle that we can take away from this dark hour is that Jesus may even be betrayed. Look again in verse 47. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than a crowd showed up. Judas, the one from the twelve, in the lead. He came right up to Jesus and he kissed him. And Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I've tried to wrap my head around this. I've tried to put my place in Judas's shoes. I don't think I'll ever fully understand the motivation behind Judas' betrayal. I mean, how could Judas possibly betray this man, Jesus, who had done nothing but good for him and on his behalf? Think about the life that Judas led for the past three years. That Judas, at the feeding of the 5,000, was literally holding the fish and the breads. The miracle was in his hands, and he was partaking and sharing it with over 5,000 people. Think about Judas on the day of Lazarus, or the days leading up to Lazarus. Remember the close family friend of Jesus sent a messenger and said, Hey, listen, your close friend Lazarus is dead. He's dying. We know that if you would just come here and spend a moment with him, that Lazarus would be healed. And Jesus intentionally waited so long that rigor mortis had actually set into Lazarus' body. And Jesus with Judas and the other twelve, walked up to that tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. 
You think about Judas riding in the boat with the disciples. Jesus was in a period of transition. He was moving from one place of ministry to another. Judas was there. He was in the boat. He was moving along the course that Jesus had set for his life. Jesus stayed behind. A massive storm broke out. These were salty sailors. They were fearing for their lives. They were struggling, and they were afraid, and death was certainly knocking at their door. And Judas was in that boat, and there was a moment when the Messiah was walking on water, and somebody saw Jesus and said, hold it. If we can just get Jesus in the boat, our lives will be changed. If we can just get Jesus in our boat, there will be peace and tranquility. If we can just get Jesus in our boat, there will be safety, security, and at the end of the day, we'll go home and we'll put our heads on the pillow and there will be life for another day. And Judas was in that boat. For the life of me, I can't even begin to imagine why Judas would even contemplate for a moment to betray Jesus. But he did. And we don't know why. And we can only surmise or make excuses or try to explain it. Maybe, Jesus was, maybe Judas was seeking fame and fortune. Maybe G- Judas was a believer. Maybe he was following this Jesus around and he stuck to Jesus as long as the crowds were gathering about. As long as there was some fame or fortune involved, Judas followed Jesus. Maybe he was just disenchanted with Jesus. Maybe Jesus had stolen or Judas had stolen. Got to be careful there, Judas and Jesus. You know, The good thing is I'm not a pastor, so if I mess up the Judas and Jesus thing, I'm not going to lose my job. (laughs) You'll just think this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just a little rusty. But think about that. Judas was perceived to be one of the best and brightest of the 12. He could count. He was the treasure. He carried around the money. Jesus and the other disciples entrusted him. Maybe he was stealing. Maybe he was embezzling. We don't know. Why would Judas possibly betray Jesus? Maybe he was a good Jew. Maybe after several trips to the temple and hearing the Jewish scholars and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the priests teaching the Torah and the Pentateuch, maybe the lights came on so he perceived And he embraced Judaism with full force with all his heart. And then when he started hearing Jesus speak and Jesus teach, and when it came to that point in Jesus' life, when he had the audacity to say that I'm the very Son of God and that through my life and my death and my resurrection that the masses will have opportunity, they will have hope for eternal life. Maybe that message of good news rattled Judas' heart. And maybe to Judas, he thought that was blasphemy, that that was false teaching. We have to suffocate. We have to squash. We have to drive this false teaching out because it's a maligning the masses and they're being led astray. We know that later on, Jesus used a disciple just like that by the name of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Similar thoughts. Maybe Judas was being blackmailed. 
Maybe there were threats against his own life, threats against his family life. We don't know. But what we do know is at the end of the day, after three years of ministry and three years of hope and three years of sitting next to the truth teller, and the truth speaker, and the great lover of humanity. We know that after three short years of being next to Jesus, 36, 30, 360 days of the year, what we do know about Judas is at the end of the day, he was willing to just simply and betray him. You know, there was a recent survey conducted, and the question was, is what are you willing to do for $10 million? What are you willing to do for $10 million? This is 67% of the people polled in our country. 25% said that they would abandon their entire family, wife and kids and all. There's probably a few people that would leave for a lot less than $10 million. I love my wife and my family. $10 million might get a thought. Just, just teasing. Twenty-three percent would become prostitutes for a week or more. I'd be a poor one, honestly. Sixteen percent would give up their American citizenship. Don't you like those memes on po- on Facebook? If so and so is elected president, I'm moving to Canada. I just wish one would say they're going to move to Mexico. Ten percent would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free for ten million dollars. Seven percent would kill a stranger. Three percent would put their children up for adoption. We have a taker. The enemy knows I have a price. The enemy knows you have a price. The enemy knows you have a price. The enemy knows. That each and every one of us, in the right situation, in the right circumstances, could potentially sell out. And I'm here to tell you this morning that things are going to get very bad. That darkness that is so prevailing and so persistent is going to begin to sift and sort and separate the American church. 
Because when you look at the resources that we have, when you look at the manpower that has gotten up out of bed this morning to go to a church, when you look at the massive amount of money that we have in our pockets at God's disposal, when you look at all the resources that are hidden in the house of God, you have to ask yourselves, why are we so ineffective? Why do we sit here and turn on the TV and see the darkness prevail? Why do we see the evil one have his way? Why does there seem to be so little fight in the heart of God's people? What has caused us to become so passive that we virtually bury our heads in the sand And let it go on day after day after day. And I believe there's a day coming in the church in America that the darkness and the pain and the suffering and the sacrifice is going to drill a line in the sand and it's either going to be on God's side or it's going to be on somebody else's side. It has to come to that. There has to be a threshing floor. There has to be a grinding and a rubbing and a sifting and a separation. And if you read the Old Testament time and time and time again, God did that to his people. And time and time again, he makes a reference to remnant. And the question is, is will we be able to stand firm? Will we be able to adhere to the principles and the precepts and the things that Jesus has taught us? I'm afraid that many in the church in America have been inoculated. You know, I have a 12-year-old son that's facing a couple shots here before the school year starts, and you know, like most 12 years old, so he's already thinking about the pain of the shot. He's already thinking about the fear associated with the shot. But you have to tell your son, you have to take the shot. Because they put just enough in you that the virus won't grow. It won't blossom. It won't take over your body and ruin your life. And religion has done that to the masses. There are so many people sitting in the pews of the churches in our country that have been inoculated. They have just, Marvin, just a small dose. Just enough to get them up out of bed to go to church to feel good about themselves. That they did something morally right. What's your price? We all have a price. And the truth of the matter is, is we could throw rocks at Judas, but when I put myself in a similar situation, I can see myself denying Jesus. I can see myself doing the same thing. 
Because there's something in the recesses of my heart and soul that is a sinful, fallen nature character, this David Lemoyne that wants to live life on his own terms. I want to call the shots. I want to be the master of my domain. I want to be a king with my own kingdom. I don't want somebody coming into my life and saying you're wrong. I'm not that humble. I don't want somebody telling me that I can't do that. I can't say this. I can't go there. I can't spend my money the way I want. I don't like having boundaries. I don't like having rules and principles and precepts. But God knows that's for our best. Another principle that we can take away in the hour of darkness is that we may very well revert to the old way of the world. Let's jump into passage, uh, verses 49 through 51. When those with him saw what was happening, they said, Master, shall we fight? And one of them took a swing, and he lopped off the ear of the chief priest's servant. And Jesus said, Stop it! Let him be! And what did Jesus do? He healed them. Many times we're tempted to go back to the old way of life. Many times we are tempted to take situation and circumstances into our own control. There's many times when I think I'm wise enough and smart enough and gifted enough and discerning enough to go my own way. Many times I want to revert back to this old way of life. Peter did. One of Jesus' closest followers. Jesus predicted, Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to fall under the weight of pressure. You are going to be battered and bruised, and you're going to be busted into thousands of pieces. Your heart and your soul and your mind, your whole life as you know it today, is going to be utterly reduced to ruin. And what did Peter have the audacity to say to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that knew his heart? He said, I won't. I never will. And here we find him at the Mount of Olives drawing a sword that he probably hasn't touched for three years. And no other instance can you read where Peter drew the sword. No other instance in life can you see where Peter was driven by self-reliance, self-determination, self-preservation. None of that in the life of Peter. But here in the cover of darkness, standing next to Jesus with the soldiers and closing in, Peter reverts to his old self. He pulls the sword out. He's proud of it. He's probably been shaking for three years. Think about it. Every time Jesus preached and somebody criticized Jesus, you can only see Peter was impulsive. He probably had his hand right there just shaking. Let me at him, Lord. Let me at him. Let me at him. I want to draw this sword, Lord. He was that kind of individual. Impulsive. Take things under his own control. Deal with things on his terms. And here he is drawing the sword and lopping off the ear. Going back to the old way of life. Dealing with things in his own terms. Enough of turning the other cheek. Enough of forgiving people. 
Enough of being a doormat. I mean, did not the prophecy about Jesus said that he would just simply be a worm? That he would be a doormat? That people would trample upon him? That people would despise him and ridicule him and criticize him? But Peter's going to have none of that in this situation. He's not going to be the worm. He's not going to be the doormat. He's drawing the sword. He's going back to his own way of life. And he's going to deal with this situation in his terms. You know, I like baseball. How many baseball fans we have here? I'm going to date my age here. Oral Hershiser from the L.A. Dodgers. One of the greatest pitchers to ever step up to the mound. He was a game-changing pitcher. Because most pitchers, when they got up there, the catcher started giving the signs. See, most pitchers said, this guy is expecting a fastball. So I'm going to throw a breaking ball. This guy is expecting a curveball, so I'm going to throw a slider. This guy's expecting a slider, so I'm going to throw a fastball. That was the mindset of most pitchers in the league, but not Oral Hershiser. He got up on the mound, and he looked at the batter, and he said, this guy wants a fastball, I'm going to throw him a fastball. But I'm going to throw it a little high, a little low, Maybe inside, maybe outside. See, Oral Hershiser was a master at throwing the pitch that the batter wanted just far enough outside that the batter would chase it. Sound familiar? We have an enemy that knows our price. He has studied humanity since the fall. He has implemented a world order that is extremely efficient and successful. And when he stands there, he knows exactly what we want. And he has the pride and the audacity to throw it just a little outside the apple. I'm going to need a ladder. I know I'm not supposed to touch it, but it's just out of my reach. And it's so red. It's so juicy. It's so delicious. I've got to have it. And we're there. And we know better. And we feel so ugly and disgusting and we're completely demoralized. Just a little high. Just a little outside. In closing, in the hour of darkness, and I know you're probably sitting there thinking right now, this message is pretty dark. 
Some of you might be sitting there thinking this morning, I wish I stayed at home with a cup of coffee in the New York Times. I know. Because I didn't want to preach it. I had something else up till Thursday. Here's the bright spot. Here's the good news. Here's the hope that while darkness wants to extinguish and suffocate and drive out the very mention, the very name, the influence, the integrity, the person, the character, the message, the hope that all is all wrapped up in Jesus Christ, they can't. And I don't care how dark it gets in our country, there's always going to be a light. There's always going to be a faint glimmer. There's always going to be something flickering. There's always going to be something that is bright and shiny and lifted up for the masses to see that this is the way out. This is your hope. I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Bank on it. Lift it up. Share it. The masses are wanting. The masses are desperate. The masses are filled with pain and suffering and sorrow. And that's why we're so plagued with all these dark and heinous and divisive and hateful, destructive forces in our country. Look at what Jesus did. What a great act of self-revelation that he was the one target. What's that cartoon? Ah, I'm trying to think of the cartoon. I like it. It was real simple with the pictures. Hmm? Now, just the pictures, and it had the short, brief caption underneath. One particular cartoon had a, had a deer standing up. On the hind legs, far side, had the target right here, big antlers, caption said bummer of a birthmark. <laughs> I thought you'd chuckle. Jesus had that birthmark. Every devil, every demon, every wicked man, woman that has ever drawn breath in this world has had one goal in mind. From century after century, after person after person, their one sole goal was to extinguish the very mention, name, and reputation and influence of Jesus Christ. 
And over the centuries, every last one of them fell like dominoes because he can't be compared. He has no equal. There is not one that is a real perceived threat. And Jesus knew it. And that's why then they attacked uh, the the priest uh, guard that Jesus, in a moment of self-revelation, could have been hateful, could have been angry. I would have said, you know, well, you know, you reap what you sow. You want to come up here and attack me, you know, call it a blessing that you're walking away just missing one ear. It could have been a lot worse. But not Jesus. He didn't preach. Boy, he picked that thing up, blew the dust off, did a little surgery, told him he was healed. That soldier reached up and said, I got my ear back. I bet his life was changed. I bet he left a different person. That's the guy I want to meet when I go to heaven. But in a moment of self-revelation, Jesus, in the darkest hour of his life, was a lover. He was a healer. He hugged people. He held people. And he minimized their pain. In fact, he delivered them from their pain and their suffering. And I'm here to tell you that the church in America has great days ahead of them. Because it's going to get dark. We're going to feel the midnight hour. But there's Jesus. And I don't have to vote for Jesus. I don't have to campaign for Jesus. I don't have to argue and fight and debate and defend Jesus. I don't have to get down in a mug, mud and slug it out and sling it around and be offensive and to be rude and to be racist or a bigot. I don't, I don't have to do that. I just have to live for Jesus. When Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, later on he turned to his followers and he says, you are the light. And God has uniquely gifted each and every one of us. And he has placed us in a specific place at a specific time with specific people that we would just simply live a life that glows. We don't have to be this torch light that shines 50,000 miles. When Jesus used the image of a light, he was talking about a little candle that cast a light of about five feet. And I want you to think about this. That in your coming and goings and your wanderings throughout the week, I want you to think about this. 
what would my world look like if I could just cast the light five feet? He's not asking us to do great things. He's not asking me to raise the dead. He's not asking me to feed 5,000. He's not asking me to grab somebody's ear and put it back on their head. He's not asking me to do the impossible. He's just asking me to do this. Will you love me? Will you listen to me? And will you follow me? And if we can do those three things, we will cast the light. And I think the church in America will be surprised that when you gather that many small lights together, how bright and far that light will penetrate. Father, we're so grateful and thankful for the freedom that we have in coming into your house and worshiping you. We are so grateful and thankful, God, for the opportunity that while it still exists, that we can talk about Jesus. We are so grateful and thankful, Lord, that for the season that you've given your people, that we have influence and that we have the opportunity to be the light, to stand still and let your spirit show others the real and true and right Jesus. We pray, Lord, over the coming days and weeks and months and years that we would keep it that simple. Love you. Listen to you. And follow you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.